Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. On today's show, the Internet of Things. What exactly are these things? How is this big new development that we keep hearing about going to benefit our lives? Is it really that great to have an internet-connected coffee maker? Joining me to discuss this is Joshua New, policy analyst at the Center for Data Innovation, uh, which is a, I guess, a sister organization to the Information Innovation Technology, ITIF. <laughs> you know, the stepchild. We're all part of the same family. Okay. Uh, well, we're big fans of ITIF, so great to have you on the show. So we talked about this on the show before, the Internet of Things, you know, everything being connected, things that you might not think were possible or even relevant or meaningful, but just to refresh listeners' memory, what exactly is the Internet of Things? So the Internet of Things is the idea that um, it's now... It, technologically feasible and cost-effective to put a sensor and uh, an internet connection on pretty much everything. Um, so, you know, it, it's a Fitbit, it's a smart thermostat, it's sensors in a bridge that can tell you when it might fall apart so you can fix it before it causes a catastrophe. It's uh, it's uh, network factory floors, smart farming equipment, uh, basically the idea that pretty much any device can now collect and transmit data that can be analyzed and acted upon. And what exactly are the benefits that we're going to be seeing from the Internet of Things other than, you know, your your bridge not collapsing? I mean, how is the average consumer going to benefit from having more and more connected devices in their house, which does pose cybersecurity concerns that we've talked about on the show before. But is this really worth it for, for people to open up their entire home to internet connections? Sure. Um, so there are a, a huge amount of potential benefits for the Internet of Things for consumers, for, for businesses, for, for public sector ac- public sector applications, excuse me. Um, so and whenever I have this discussion, I want to preface it with uh, you know, speculating about all the benefits that we can expect from the Internet of Things today would be equivalent to predicting uh, the benefits of the World Wide Web in like 1995. Like we can theorize about it, we can have a pretty good idea, but there's no possible way to know like the the entire scope that it'll have. Uh, that being said, so even a a relatively mundane example like your 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 fitness tracker or your thermostat. When everybody has those, there are some really interesting scale effects that happen uh, that people don't initially realize or think about when they first buy these technologies that are that could be really, really impactful. So take uh, your smart thermostat, for example, a connected home device. In theory, uh, it, it monitors weather data and your personal habits and can automatically adjust temperature on a room per room basis. And its big selling point is that it pays for itself in energy savings based on how it can learn your behaviors and, and adjust heating and, and cooling accordingly. They're a couple hundred dollars usually. Most people find it worth it, and it'll pay for itself after a year or so. But if an entire city uses smart thermostats for every building, that entire city's energy consumption could be dramatically reduced, which means less strain on the power grid, which means less money you're spending spending on repairs. It means dramatically less uh, energy consumption and, and emissions overall. And there's all these kind of secondary benefits that uh, we'll only really see happen as the technology is fully mature and gets fully deployed. So while the average consumer might adopt a couple of these things that we talk about in the Internet of Things and the benefits might seem marginal at the outset, on the macro level, if you can kind of think of it as being a good citizen, if everyone starts adopting these things and everyone starts using them, the benefits on the large scale are great. Now we've talked about, obviously there's a big cybersecurity concern with this because the more things connected to the internet, the more avenues for attack. But we've done that in previous shows and I'll refer listeners to those episodes. But today I wanna talk about the macro level, like what you're saying, you know, entire cities becoming more energy efficient. And you recently put out a white paper, why countries need national strategies for the internet of things. 
Now, what role does the government have in the Internet of Things, and why does it need to be a national strategy in your view? So, uh, as I mentioned, when thinking about the Internet of Things, it's really important not to just think it's cons- to think to recognize that it's not just consumer devices. Like, there's a reason no one's really advocating for like a national VR headset strategy or national 4K TV strategy. It's much more in line with. Uh, it's much more comparable to the internet itself. Uh, so we had the national broadband plan in, in 2008 or 2009, and it it recognized that this is a a hugely important opportunity for both uh, public and private sector applications of technology. And because it's a network technology, because of of a host of other factors unique to this specific kind of technology, there are things that uh, warrant government involvement, the things that private sector cannot do as quickly as would be ideal to to support full development and deployment of the technology. Um, And there are uh, a, a handful of categories that, of these issues that we identify in the report, um, and they fall into three main buckets. They are market failures, uh, regulation, and then equity. Um, so market failures are issues where, you know, they, they could be overcome eventually uh, just through natural, you know, there, there's an enormous uh, uh, economic incentive to buy these technologies and thus invest in this in these technologies. But there are some ish areas that uh, are, are pretty big obstacles to overcome and the public sector could involve itself and, and reduce those barriers so the private sector can be a much more effective engine of growth of these now technologies. Now this, this might be a counterintuitive idea because we usually talk about the government being very slow and inept sure. when it comes to technology and the private sector being much better. So this is an interesting idea. You're suggesting that there's an area where it might actually take longer for the private sector to get something done and having the government step in would help. What is a specific market failure that you could either identify now or predict where you think that government getting involved would actually be beneficial? Sure. Um, so we've this is an example that we've seen before, and it, it will happen. It's already happening with IoT. Um, so uh, this issue of, of chicken and egg dynamics of adoption. So uh, high, high speed mobile broadband, high speed mobile broadband. Uh, people don't really demand it until you have really data intensive applications on your phone where you need it everywhere, like uh, HD video streaming everywhere you go on the subway on your smartphone. People only demand those apps if there's if there's high speed mobile broadband coverage. So they would benefit, they, you know, uh, adoption of one spurs adoption of the other. But if neither really exist in any significant capacity, then both the growth of both kind of stagnate. Um, so in, in how that relates to IoT, um, in the, in the Asia Pacific markets, governments like Japan and South Korea, uh, uh, 10 years ago, very early on, uh, invested heavily in spurring adoption of, of near field communication payments. So mobile wallets on your smartphone. Uh, not a really complicated technology, but we're only now seeing that being deployed in full in the United States. So things like Apple Pay, uh, Google Wallet, you just tap your, your, your phone at a CVS and you walk away. Uh, really simple, but no one really demanded it in smartphones in the United States because there was no opportunities to use it. And companies, you know, retailers didn't really have any incentive to adopt it if there was no one using that technology. So we're only now seeing that uh, that adoption uh, in any really significant capacity in the United States. Whereas uh, in the Asia Pacific region, I have in the Asia Pacific region, uh, they've the the government uh, several governments came together 
with their private sectors and said, we will you know, implement these technologies in uh, public transit, we'll implement them in, uh, I'm blanking on the other examples, but a whole host of other applications where they could kind of set the ball rolling for, for, op, op, for opportunities to use these technologies that signal to the private sector that, okay, this will be, there will be users if we invest in it. So let's invest in it. And that, it, you know, it has a, it's a positive feedback loop for the growth of the technology. And because uh, those governments were so proactive about kind of spurring, overcoming that market failure, uh, they, I believe they're capturing like, it's something like 90% of the overwhelming majority of that market, which is supposed to be about, uh, uh, what is it? 4.6 trillion uh, by 2022. And you've seen this with other technologies where having interoperability and standards could actually be beneficial for an industry getting its shit together. And one industry where the United States is really unique in being behind is credit cards. Sure. So the NPR's Planet Money did a great segment on this. If you travel and you know if you go abroad, a lot of times you realize that you're using the chip on your credit card, not the cassette tape reader. It's much more secure. It makes fraud harder, but it actually takes a little bit longer. And Americans being as impatient as we are, one of the barriers to adoption of that technology was waiting an extra 10 seconds in the grocery store when you scan your credit card. Sure. So if there were a standard or you know, even when the government coming in and mandating things, which is generally bad, you might have actually had a more secure marketplace and less need for credit card companies to spend so much money on identity theft and prevention and fraud and all that stuff because if we would just wait an extra 10 seconds and use the chip, it could work. So it might be counterintuitive to many in the free market community who think that government getting involved in technology is usually pretty bad. But if there are some areas where standards and interoperability are important for the Internet of Things, that could be positive. But what does that look like? Is this a multi-stakeholder process? Is this industry sitting down with government? Or do you imagine a much more top-down, you know, regulatory approach where they just make rules and you have to follow them? So uh, it's definitely not the latter. Um, and I, I understand the concern. You know, a lot of people in the tech world are, are very much opposed to the government saying, this is the standard you have to follow. Uh, what would be enormously beneficial for the Internet of Things is the government recognizing that there's a need for standards and a need for interoperability, and then convening all those market forces and, and getting, bringing them to the same table so that they can agree and cooperate on what those standards actually are. Um, so uh, this is particularly relevant to public sector adoption of the technology. Um, a lot of public sector applications are developed uh, for specific cities, but they have, uh, you know, uh, the, the example we like to use is um, uh, smart uh, NFC toll payment things. Uh, there's like six or seven major networks of those in the United States, and they work for a handful of states. Some of them work for only one state. Uh, but on networks where they on where those kind of uh, states border each other, you can't use that same system, even though it's the same kind of technology, it, from one state to the next, just because it's the same application, it's the same kind of benefit, but there's no sort of coordination between those standards. Um, and this is a private sector-led de development of the technology. What would have been enormously beneficial and, and probably would have... Uh, the United States would see a much larger deployment of this technology in general is if there was some sort of, uh, you know, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Transportation organized some sort of roundtable for NFC toll payment systems. And then the industry could lead the development. They could decide what those standards were, but they could they could then work with the states to say this is a, a much more effective technology if there is more users. And this is how we get more users. Now, having a uniform standard does sound great in theory, but is there a resources problem and a mandate problem here? So let's say if Washington decides this is the standard for tolls. So now everyone has the same, you know, you tap your phone at the toll booth and you go through and it's great. 
would that be harder for a small city with a small budget to implement than say a city like New York or Los Angeles? Um, is there a implementation issue when you set a universal standard and how would you mitigate that? Sure. So I, you know, I don't think it necessarily, first of all, has to be a mandate saying you have to use the technology or else. Um, but I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, of benefits in having, you know, this is what the gold standard for toll payment interoperability systems are. And then any city that wants to deploy these technologies has that kind of framework to work with them. They put out their, their, their RFP uh, to deploy one of these systems. Um, it, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be technologically burdensome to implement a good standard for any sort of technology. But if industries leading this, they have no real incentive to to set a high high barrier to entry with any sort of standard. So it's going to be it would be ideally for most IoT applications, industry led standards that the government just acted uh, as kind of a convener to help develop. And there's not really any sort of punishment for not doing that. Uh, but you know that's the government playing an active role in supporting the development of the technology. So we've talked about market failures and how government could potentially come in and play a positive role. And we've talked about how it's really hard to predict all the benefits of such a nascent industry. Now, you mentioned that there might be some need for regulation in the Internet of Things. Um, I know the Federal Trade Commission, an agency that is frequently uh, the subject of our ire, uh, is talking about potentially regulating the Internet of Things. Do you see a role for government in not just adopting standards and convening multi-stakeholder bodies, which are generally a little bit more deliberative and less top-down, do you see them just writing regulations and rules that companies that connect you know, refrigerators to, to the internet are going to have to follow, and would that be good or bad? Um, I think that would be bad. I, so I don't want to say that there will never be a reason why the government needs to... like that there will never be warranting new sorts of regulation for right. specific instances. Never say never. <laughs> um, but what, what I think is uh, really important is that so many, the Internet of Things will be so far reaching and have so many different applications in so many different kinds of sectors that uh, whatever the government's approach is, and I'll go into that, what it should be in a second, it needs to be coordinated. It needs to be kind of a, a, uh, a concerted, well-thought-out approach to how they will regulate the Internet of Things. So because uh, what we really don't want to see is this kind of weird overlapping patchwork of regulations for the same kinds of technology, but it, you know, whether it's in a car or used in healthcare or it's a consumer facing device, what have you, could be subject to overlapping or conflicting rules. That would be uh, enormously counterproductive to the development of the technology. Um, so, in terms of, you know, when they're deciding when specific rules need to be implemented or changed, what what I do what we do know now is that a lot of technologies governing how the internet uses consumer data and how companies use consumer data uh, today probably won't be the most appropriate for the Internet of Things, uh, specifically around things like uh, notification and consent for collecting consumer data. Uh, just by the the simple fact that most IoT devices, or not most, but a, a huge amount won't have user interfaces. So there's no traditional ways for them to actually say, we're gonna collect this kind of benign data. Do you agree to this, yes or no? And what we would hope that regulators recognize is that social norms around benign data collection, like driving down a street and there's a car sensor that says you, you drove down the street. It's not you, but it could be conceived as you know, identifiable information. I think once these technologies kind of mature and people understand how that benefits them, most people won't care about that and that, uh, saying that you have to agree to that every single time is is uh, counterproductive. It doesn't really benefit consumers anyway and only serves to slow adoption of the technology. Yeah, that's a really important point. And it might be hard for listeners to imagine, but 
There's a lot of you know privacy advocates out there who are very concerned about private sector data collection, which is a totally different animal than you know what the NSA is doing, which sure. could be completely you know extra legal and just not okay. But you know generally the way that private data collection works is you agree to a set of terms and conditions that is way too long and incomprehensible to anyone who's not a lawyer, and we just kind of say yes and just go go about our business and. That is arguably a social norm. We, we have developed a norm where we don't give a shit about our privacy and we exchange our data for free services that are not actually free, as I think Zuckerberg once said about Facebook, when something is free, you are the product. Sure. Um, but it, it's, you know, when you buy your coffee maker, you get your fridge, it's, it's not necessarily going to have like a nice little iPad in it asking you every time if you want to consent to data collection. Sure. It's just a basic thing that's going to be different about these devices. And and you bring up a really important point. Does it actually benefit consumers? Is it just a handful of groups in Washington who really care about privacy that are advocating for this? Or is it the consumers themselves? And we might just have to decide that the benefits of big data in the, in the Internet of Things far outweigh privacy concerns. And we also have to accept that this is going to be messy. And prescriptive regulation at the outset of the Internet of Things, which is what the FTC might have been talking about, which was concerning to some in the tech community, is really tough for an industry that's so new. And we might just have to resign ourselves to the fact that this will be messy, there will be some trial and error, there will be harms that arise that regulators should certainly police after the fact, but trying to do it before the fact might be a problem. And it's that's really just the difference between dynamism, which is being comfortable with a messy future, being comfortable with weird things that happen and dealing with them as they come, and technocracy, which is that the future is great, we're excited about the internet of things, and we're going to design it in a very specific way because we know what's best. Sure. So uh, to that point, uh, former FTC commissioner Josh Wright said this much more eloquently than I could uh, in, a, in a speech after he left the FTC about how um, he thought uh, the the Bureau of Economics was had become subservient to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the agency, meaning that uh, when they were examining a lot of these uh, consumer protection issues, particularly around big data, particularly around uh, the Internet of Things, they were, the, so the FTC has a mandate to balance potential benefits to cooperation and consumer empowerment and, and economic benefits yeah, against simple, consumer harms. Yeah. Simple cost-benefit analysis. Exactly. Um, and he argues very compellingly that they do not do that, that uh, the economic analysis, if it's done at all, is not weighted equally as as consumer harms and what we're seeing a lot in these discussions is that the consumer harms presented are you know on paper they they violate the letter of the law and those companies should be punished for that I, i'm not arguing that but saying a a a hypothetical harm or a harm on paper only with no actual demonstrable harm in effect it is the basis for like a, a a massively punitive suit is is really really counterproductive and that signals to the private sector that don't take risks with this technology. Don't actually try to do something new because we'll bring the hammer down on you. Um, uh, FTC uh, versus Nomi Technologies example of that. I won't go into that too much now, but it was a a, a really interesting uh, uh, retail tracking technology. Where, yeah, we've uh, we've yeah, covered this sure. before at Tech Freedom, where basically it was a company that was helping stores track the movements of their customers within a store. And while that might sound really really creepy, why are they watching me? There are some benefits to sure. that technology. Yeah, and it was it was completely anonymized data. It's you know any time a store wants to better plan how many employees to have so the checkout lines are shorter or organize their store better, that's how they do it. Uh, and then knowing technologies didn't. They said they would in their privacy policy. They would have uh, an in-store opt-out mechanism, and they didn't. They had it online. 
um, and they were in the wrong for that. But without, but no, there was no evidence of any sort of harms for consumers, despite the tangible economic benefits of this technology. Right. Um, and therein lies the problem because Nomi had no incentive to provide an in-store opt-out mechanism. That they voluntarily did that, and if they were, if they said they would, they should have done it. Um, but that has a chilling effect. So no, no tech, no company deploying this technology is going to do anything but the bare minimum now for you know some sort of uh, empowered consumer choice or way to right. manage those risks. Because the words come back to bite you in the ass if you promise things that you don't deliver on. Right. So now you're actually incentivized to be worse about co consumer privacy. But basically the idea is police the harms as they come. Sure. And if you're regulating based on a hypothetical, you probably need to ask yourself if that exactly. regulation. And, and that's you said, when there are harms, consumers should, or regulators should act very swiftly. They should be narrow and targeted. But it benefits the growth of the technology as a whole when these harms are addressed swiftly and productively. Well, we'll link to the white paper in the show notes for today's episode. It's titled Why Countries Need National Strategies for the Internet of Things. A very interesting uh, paper and well done, sir. And uh, my guest has been Joshua New, policy analyst at the Center for Data Innovation. Josh, thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. Let us know what you think of today's episode and other episodes. Uh, send us an email at media at techfreedom.org. Uh, feel free to pitch guests, topics, even yourself as a guest. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, please leave us a review in, our, in the iTunes store uh, because it will help others find the show. And thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.